Hi there. Welcome to The Music's Not a Threat, a podcast about culture, history, and an anarchist pop band called Chumbawamba. Our topic for today is love, and we'll be taking a look at the context and background of the Chumbawamba song, Sing About Love, from their 2008 album, The Boy Bands Have Won. Actually, The Boy Bands Have Won isn't the full title of the album. It's just the first five words of the 156-word paragraph that is the album's title. I've seen it claimed this is the longest album title of all time, which I can't find any actual authority that certifies that record, but all the sources I can find basically agree that the third longest album title is the Fiona Apple album that starts with the words, When the Pawn. That one has a total of 90 words in its title, which is already ridiculous. Then the second longest title belongs to a compilation album by the group Soulwax, the title of which starts Most of the Remixes. That one tops Fiona Apple by just 13 words, clocking in at 103. But at 156, half again as much as its nearest competitor, I can't find an album title longer than Chumbawamba's The Boy Bands Have Won. Or to give it its full title, The Boy Bands Have Won. And all the copyists and the tribute bands and the TV talent show producers have won. We are our culture to be shaped by ministry, whether from ideas or from the Yeah, this is still happening. Then it's done. And the boy bands have won. <sighs> no joke, I genuinely considered reading all three of those album titles in their entirety, but even I didn't have the patience for that. The album and its title will get their own episodes at some point, or I'll cover it in the episode for the song Pickle, which has very similar themes. We'll see. Anyway, the topic for this episode is not the album, but the song Sing About Love. This song is from 2008, so we're about 10 years past their big hit, and Chumbawamba's music is going in a kind of folkier direction. This song in particular is all a cappella. It doesn't sound like the Chumbawamba you know, but I think they do it pretty well. Take a listen. I don't want to sing about anger and hate. I don't want to sing about fear and defeat. I don't want to sing about the things I always sing about. I wish I could sing about love. I wish I could sing about love. They wish they could sing about it, so today, we're going to talk about it. So let's talk about love. Che Guevara once said, well, okay, what he said was in Spanish, but for my listeners who don't speak Spanish, and for me, because I also don't speak Spanish, from here on out, we'll be using translations and living in a pretend world where everyone in all places and all times spoke the same language that I do now. In that pretend world, what Che Guevara said was, Let me say, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary without this quality. The true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. It's a good line for revolutionary romantics and romantic revolutionaries, and I've definitely seen it quoted in the context of romance, but that isn't really what he's talking about in the original context. Then again, being taken out of context is kind of Che Guevara's legacy in modern pop culture. This fad has kind of faded now, but there was a time not too long ago when mass-produced Che Guevara t-shirts were so ubiquitous that making jokes about it being cliché have themselves become cliché. Or should I say, cliché. Maybe we'll dedicate an episode to that t-shirt thing at some point. At the very least, it's a fascinating intersection between mainstream culture and the radical fringe. But for now, I want to stick to just the context of this one quote. That the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. This quote was first published in 1965 in a letter describing the then-current state of the Cuban Revolution. 
It talks about the sacrifices made by the Cuban revolutionaries, and the quote is meant to explain why they were willing to make these sacrifices, because of their great feelings of love. He doesn't specify what kind of love he means, whether it's romantic love, family, friends, or the sort of broader love of all humanity. You can imagine how any of those might motivate someone. But whatever kind of love you're motivated by, he's building to a larger point about how that love should be expressed. And I'm not sure how many people who've used this quote out of context would agree with the whole thing. Here's how it continues. Revolutionaries cannot descend to the level at which ordinary people put their love into practice with little doses of daily affection. The leaders of the revolution have children learning their first words, not learning to say daddy. Their wives, too, must be part of the general sacrifice of their lives in order to take the revolution to its destiny. The circle of their friends is limited strictly to the circle of comrades in the revolution. There is no life outside of it. No life outside of the revolution. Basically, he's framing this larger work for societal change as being a higher expression of love for the people that they care about, even if it comes at the expense of everyday expressions like actually spending time with them. And if you think that kind of revolutionary austerity sounds pretty harsh, then yeah, it does. It certainly doesn't sound pleasant, but neither does revolution. It sounds messy and difficult and dangerous and a million other reasons why I've never personally considered taking up arms against the system. So it's hard for someone like me to understand why anyone would want to be part of a revolution. But that's kind of the point. The revolutionaries he's talking about don't necessarily want to be part of a revolution either. It's easy to think that revolutionaries are revolting because they like it, because that's the kind of people that they are. And it's certainly true that some people who participate in violent uprisings might do so because they love the violence or because they want to set up a new oppressive government with themselves at the top. Those people wouldn't be true revolutionaries, according to Che's definition, but I'll leave the question of who gets to be a true revolutionary to another episode. The point is, if you are a quote-unquote true revolutionary motivated by love, you're not rebelling just for kicks. Somebody like that probably wouldn't find the idea of revolution any more appealing than I do. And yet, they do it anyway. Because maybe the short-term sacrifice of comfort or convenience is worth it for the long-term happiness and security of people they love. That's how I read it anyway. And that idea doesn't just apply to armed revolutions. I think some version of it has to apply to anyone who tries to make a change in the status quo. Because any amount of change will require some amount of sacrifice. Sticking to the status quo is easy. And in order to break away from it, you're going to have to accept some amount of difficulty. On the other hand, not every sacrifice is equally helpful or valuable or necessary. Do you actually have to disconnect from people as individuals in order to best serve the people as a group? Maybe sometimes you do. Maybe in the context he's talking about, they did have to do that. Like I said, I'm not going to get into the details of Che Guevara or the Cuban Revolution in this episode. But as I kind of alluded to earlier... That kind of interpersonal austerity, that cutting yourself off from social relationships in the name of social change, that wouldn't be agreed upon as necessary or even necessarily good, even among those true revolutionaries motivated by love. To quote noted revolutionaries Chumbawamba from their Frequently Asked Questions page in 1998, Why would anybody want a revolution if all it promised was more unhappiness? I'm not fighting for a more austere world, but one where joy is prized. Or, put more succinctly ten years earlier in 1987, what's the point of change if it's no fun? And I don't think that either side is strictly right or wrong here. It's just a balance that every movement for change needs to strike. 
on the one hand, you can't make real change without some sacrifice. Or to quote the Great Revolutions podcast, paraphrasing the French revolutionary Robespierre, you can't have a revolution without having a revolution. On the other hand, making yourself a martyr for the cause, insisting on complete austerity or total ideological purity, can end up backfiring and alienating the people you're supposed to be revolting for. We'll come back to this in later episodes. But there is one more part of Che's letter that I want to share, because while I think that Chumbawamba might disagree with the idea that strict personal austerity is a requirement for social change, I think they would agree with this. Every day we must fight so that our love for living humanity is transformed into concrete actions. So the love is not a threat, just like the music. But maybe just like music, the action that love inspires can be a threat. The music's not a threat! Action! The music inspires can be a threat! So, let's talk about love. Specifically, let's talk about love in popular music. You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs, but I look around me and I see that isn't so. The world's already chock full of love songs, and yet love continues to be the most popular topic in popular music. And why is that? Well, first maybe we should ask the question whether the topic of a pop song really even matters. It's totally possible for a song to become popular even if nobody knows what it's about, either because the words are slurred, Or too fast. The other night I drifted nice continental drifted by a mountain a light lantern burned sign. Or too loud. Or just in another language. Or it's literal gibberish. The words are clear enough, but they just don't help you to get the meaning. All kinds of different choices in delivery and songwriting and mixing can make the meaning more or less likely to get through. But even if it doesn't, the fact is that all of those songs were hits, despite their borderline incomprehensible lyrics. But if the words don't really matter at all, then you'd think that songs would just be about any random thing. You'd be as likely to hear a song about former U.S. President James K. Polk as you would a song about the onomastic history of a city in Turkey. But you don't hear many songs about those things. Unless you listen to a lot of They Might Be Giants, in which case you've definitely heard both of those. So if we could be singing about anything, why do we keep singing about love? Maybe it's a force of habit. Maybe we're just writing love songs because love songs are what we write. Write what you know, as they say. Or maybe write what you write. And yeah, that's probably part of it. But I think the biggest answer is probably this. In musical theater, there's this idea that characters sing because they have to sing when their emotions become too big for speech. The stronger those emotions, the more it makes sense to express them in a sort of exaggerated style, like poetry or song. And you can actually get a lot of comedy out of breaking this rule. We expect music to be motivated by these strong emotions and big events, so it ends up being surprising and funny when a song is about things that don't usually provoke those big emotions. Like a simple trip to the dry cleaners. They got the mustard That jubilant dry cleaning customer is from the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
For another example, there's a Weird Al song called The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota. It's just the story of a relatively uneventful family road trip, and it's mostly funny because of how mundane it is. Like, why would you bother setting this to music? We're gonna see the biggest bottle of twine in Minnesota. We're heading for the biggest bottle of twine in Minnesota. Having said that, I saw Weird Al play this live last year, and I genuinely almost cried just listening to the whole crowd singing along to this very intentionally inane song. I don't know, I guess even when the song is silly, there's just something very moving about finding yourself surrounded by a bunch of weirdos who are just as silly as you are. Now, apropos of nothing, here's Weird Al playing Tub Thumping. I get knocked down, but I get up again, you're never gonna keep me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Anyway, back on topic. The point is, if you feel strongly about something, that's probably going to translate well to music. And based on my experience, people seem to feel pretty strongly about romance. That's why when I say we're going to talk about love or love songs, the default assumption is that I mean romantic love, even though the word can have all kinds of other uses, from I love my Prada backpack to I love the smell of pump in the morning. But when we talk about love songs, we're not talking about those things. We're talking about romantic love. Or sexual attraction. The gray area between those two things in real life is even grayer in pop music, to the point where one can just become a euphemism for the other. See, for example, Enrique Iglesias' Tonight I'm Fucking You, or Akon's I Wanna Fuck You, both of which released supposedly clean versions where the only major change was taking out the word fuck and replacing it with the word love. But whether you mean love genuinely or euphemistically, in either case, there's lots of strong emotions there, so it makes sense that lots of people would end up singing about them. A lot. According to one study published in the journal Psychology of Music, March 2019, over two-thirds of top 40 songs in the U.S. are about love in one way or another. And honestly, two-thirds sounds kind of low, but let's just go with it for now. What would you guess is the next most popular topic after love? My guesses were either bragging or partying. Well, according to the study, after love, the next most popular topic for popular music is... Music. And dancing. Right what you know, I guess. If we sing about the things we love, people do love talking about themselves. Musicians want to talk about music, writers want to talk about writing, people who make movies make movies about making movies. The next most popular topic is partying and having a good time at around 10% of songs. Then alcohol and drugs, wealth and status, family, all things that produce strong emotions in people. Then next is social and political issues, around 7-ish percent of songs. And probably unsurprisingly, I want to talk about this one a little bit more. But in order to do that, I need to tell you about Dick Gawkin. His last name is spelled G-A-U-G-H-A-N, and as I understand it, that middle syllable is supposed to be pronounced somewhere between Ach and Ach, like in Loch Ness. Gawkin. Anyway, Dick Gawkin is a Scottish folk singer who wrote a different kind of love song. That's the title of the song, A Different Kind of Love Song. There's also a share song called A Different Kind of Love Song, but that's a different song. A different, different kind of love song. The share one's doing kind of a new agey, we are all one, why can't we be friends, love everybody kind of love song. But anyway, that's not the song we're talking about. The Dick Gawkin different kind of love song was inspired by someone who came up to him after a gig and started asking questions about the kinds of things he chooses to sing about. For context, the other songs on the same album talk about, among other things, the Cold War, nuclear weapons, religious violence, political prisoners. Yeah, so that's the kind of thing he's singing, and it's not exactly what his questioning listener wanted to hear. Here's how he recounts the conversation. 
You ask me why I sing no love songs. You see, the songs that I sing make you angry and sad. So he isn't singing love songs, but as we'd expect, he is singing about things that are emotionally charged. Just for this listener, not the emotions they want out of their music. Skipping ahead to the next stanza. You say that all that I sing all this trouble And that doesn't entertain you You say that I should be trying to make people happy Well, strange as it seems, that's just what I'm trying to do He's singing political music. He's singing about the bad times and the troubles of the world, and that isn't necessarily a fun subject to hear about. Like, if listening to that doesn't make you happy, then, you know, yeah, fair enough. But it's not the listener's happiness that Gakken is concerned about. He's concerned about the unhappiness created by the situations he describes, and he knows those situations won't just go away if he stops talking about them. But maybe by talking about them, by singing about them, he can help inspire the change that resolves them and ultimately produce more happy people than a happy song would have. So I'll keep trying to make people happy I'll keep trying in the best way I know how And for me to help make the most people happy I must make you even more sad songs produce anger and sadness because the things he's singing about are angering and saddening. But if the feelings of anger and sadness in his listeners can motivate change, then for Gawkin, that's worth it. Finally, coming back around to the question of why he sings no love songs, he ends the song like this. If you listen again, then you might even find all the songs that I sing In other words, a song that's not about love as its topic, but a song that's motivated by love as its reason for existing. That's the reason he won't, or maybe can't, stop singing these songs. Who could refrain that had a heart to love, and in that heart courage to make love known? Shakespeare. Although I'm definitely taking that line out of context. It's the Che Guevara t-shirt thing all over again. But okay, after all of that, we're finally ready to talk about the Chumbawamba song for this episode. Sing about love. I don't want to sing about war and greed. I don't want to sing about those we can't feed. I don't want to sing about the things I always sing about. I wish I could sing about love. I wish I could sing about love. The band lists a different kind of love song as partial inspiration for this one, and you can definitely see the similarities. Like a different kind of love song, Sing About Love doesn't have a chorus. It just has these short four-line verses, all with the same simple structure. I don't want to sing about, I don't want to sing about, I don't want to sing about, I wish I could sing about. And the repetitiveness kind of drives home the message. 
at this point in their career, after 25 years of singing topical songs, they know as well as anyone that this stuff can be exhausting. They don't want to sing about these depressing topics any more than you enjoy being depressed. So then why do it? If they don't want to be doing this, why do it? Alice said in an interview with MTV, You got choices. You do 70s cover versions like all the boy and girl bands are doing, or you write songs about love, or you write songs about things that actually upset you. We write about things that we are obsessed with. And I should point out that, well, the things that they were obsessed with were often political issues. They did write and sing a few love songs, maybe even one or two that were silly. So the troubles of the world didn't really stop them from singing about love. That's not ultimately the point. It's not that they can't sing their songs about love and happiness. It's that they want their other songs to stop being relevant. And until the situations that those songs describe are actually resolved, to just stop talking about it because it's unpleasant is unthinkable, even immoral. The German poet Bertolt Brecht wrote, Ah, what an age it is when to speak of trees is almost a crime, for it is a kind of silence about injustice. Why sing about unpleasant topics? Why do anything unpleasant at all? For the same reason as Che Guevara and the Cuban revolutionaries. Because some things are worth it. Because of their great love. The last lines of Sing About Love finish the thought. They don't want to sing these songs, but... But I'll sing them and sing them Till there's no need to sing them And then I can sing about love Then I can sing about love Sing the songs until the songs inspire action, until the action changes the world, until the world has changed so much it no longer needs the action or the songs. So after having this explained to them, how did Dick Gawkins' listener respond? Well, to hear him tell the story, she looked at me sadly and said, Oh, you're still at the political stage then, and walked off. And that's an understandable response, to be honest. Political music or protest music turns a lot of people off, and for a lot of good reasons. But that's a subject for another episode. As for me, I don't know. I don't know if singing about the troubles of the world plays any part in making those troubles go away. For what it's worth, I do think both Dick Gahan and Chumbawamba are sincere. I really do believe they're motivated by great feelings of love. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'll agree with any given thing that they or Che Guevara might do in the name of love. Good intentions don't justify all courses of action. But I do agree with them on the basic premise that if you or I care about something or someone and don't do anything about it, then that caring doesn't amount to much. They do not love who do not show their love. Shakespeare, again. This one's more true to context. So love is not a threat, but maybe action that love inspires can be a threat. I sympathize a lot with Dick Gawkins' listener, actually. When you're confronted with the pain and sadness of the world, it's hard to really know how to take it. It's hard not to respond, well, what am I supposed to do about it? And that can be a cop-out if you don't mean it, but a lot of the time I genuinely don't know what I am supposed to do about it. I don't like the fact that so many people in the world have life so hard, and yeah, I would like for that to change, but how's one person like me really supposed to make a difference? I don't know. And not knowing what to do means I often don't do anything. But doing nothing does nothing, and I want to be done doing nothing. So in the spirit of doing something, it may not seem like much, but it's kind of a big deal to me. I had a collaborator on this episode. Many thanks to my friend Josh Padilla, who provided the voice of Che Guevara. In general, I find it much easier to work alone than to work with other people, but I recently read Aitan Hirsch's book, Politics is for Power, and 
my basic takeaway from it was that the future of civilization depends on the interpersonal connections between us and the people around us. So I'm trying to make an effort to be less of a lone wolf and more of a sociable wolf. We'll see how that goes. Transcripts, notes, and sources for this episode available at musicthreat.net slash ep slash 002. That's EP slash 002. And if you've got another theory on why we sing so many love songs, I'd love to hear it. Contact information on the website. Just please cite your sources. Thanks for listening.